Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's the end of May 1901. The guerrilla war has turned nasty as the coldest winter in living memory has started, bringing gusts of freezing wind which ripped through the concentration camps with their exposed bell tents, a threadbare protection for women and children. Also chilled to the bone was Denise Reitz and his four German comrades who were riding south from the western Transvaal heading for the Vaal River. Their plan was to cross into the Free State, then continue the 500 kilometres south in order to invade the Cape Colony. As we heard last week, the entire plan had a quixotic flavour, with rates the canny, felt-wise Boer and his friends, two students, a businessman and a farmhand. It was the farmhand, however, Heinrich Besser, who had the first big problem. After the little group had bungled and attempted capturing a spy the previous day, they set off before first light towards the Vaal River. The countryside was alive with British troops moving about on one of their drives, ordered by Commander-in-Chief Lord Kitchener. They were burning farms and rolling up the Boer citizens, forcing them into internment camps. My knowledge of Feldcraft brought our party safely through to the Vaal River, says Reitz. For me, early experience was of value, as we threaded and twisted successfully between the enemy columns, never having occasion to fire a shot. That, of course, would have been suicidal, as they were now trying to remain as hidden as possible, surrounded as they were. Once we were held up for half a day, while a body of English troops camped within hail of where we lay hidden in a patch of thorn. Later that day, they were searching for a crossing point, when Heinrich Wiss's horse suddenly gave in. The German farmhand could not walk, he had blistered feet, which meant a stark choice. His friends would have to abandon him, as remaining behind while he tried to recover would have taken more than a week, and they would have all been discovered in that time. So it was that the remaining three Germans and rates left Visa near an English column, which meant he was picked up and he would have been cared for. Rates was also getting over his own broken leg, remember. My leg was on the mend, but we suffered a great deal from the cold at nights. They also could not make a fire, as it would have attracted the English scouts. Otherwise, we almost grew to enjoy the excitement of dodging the enemy forces and patrols, and the Germans said it was the best time they'd had in the war. By the fifth or sixth day, they'd crested a long rise near Liudorn and saw the site they'd hoped for, the Vaal River. We saw the wide plains of the Free State stretching beyond, says Reitz. They slept in an unburnt farmhouse on the Transvaal side that night, but early the next morning as they rode off, a contingent of British mounted infantry rolled into sight. The four climbed a copy to see what their plans were. The soldiers made for the farm we'd just vacated, he said. Smoke and flames were issuing from doors and windows. A noise nearby alerted them to the fact they were not alone, and out of the bush came two boers. Two old fellows rode up from the direction of the Vaal River and joined us on the hill. The two elderly men stared at the flames. They reminded me of my former commander General Marula and his brother, for they both wore rusty bell toppers, and the tails of the ancient claw hammer coats flapped in the breeze as they came. The two were not in the mood to talk, and merely grunted a curt greeting before dismounting. They took careful note of where the British were, and then sat hidden on rocks watching the farm burning. For a long time neither of them spoke, and it was only when the roof fell in amid a shower of sparks that the elder of the two sighed and turned to the other and said, 
Brother John, there go those teak wood beams I brought from Pretoria after the Jemison raid. That was the infamous raid sponsored by Cecil John Rhodes in 1896, ostensibly to try to overthrow the Transvaal government. It failed. The two men slowly stood up and remounted their horses. Then they were gone, leaving the three Germans and Rates alone on top of the kopje. The four quickly rode after the two elders, who explained that there was a women's lager halted near the Val River, out of sight of the British. These women's lagers were groups of women, children and the elderly who were fleeing before the British scorched earth policy. As each farm was alerted to the arrival of the British column, many of the Boer women and children preferred to try and make a run for it rather than be swept up and sent to the internment camps where disease and starvation were beginning to kill many. We found that the lager consisted of about 30 wagons, with perhaps three or four times that number of women and children, all under the care of our two worthies. The two worthies, dressed in their claw hammer coats, explained that the women and children were biding their time in hiding until the British column moved out of their area, then they'd returned to their burnt-out homes. We rested at the lager for a few hours while one of the old church wardens rode out to see what the English were doing. He came galloping back to say that a group of about 1,500 English horsemen were on the riverbank eight miles higher up. That set off a feverish activity as the women and children inspanned the wagons they had to cross into the Free State quickly or be trapped on the Transvaal side of the river. There was a ford of sorts close by, chosen by the two elders as a possible site to cross in just the sort of predicament. Rates and the three Germans helped the women get the 30 wagons across. But it was pitiful to see them standing waist-deep in the icy water, tugging at the wheels and urging on the oxen in their anxiety to put the river between themselves and the columns. Two hours later, all were safely over the ford and making for trees nearby for protection. Then we waded back to the Transvaal bank to fetch our horses, and on our return found the wagons underway, making across the unlimited open country of the Free State that stretches southward for hundreds of miles. The four rested under trees and dried their clothes, deciding they would not travel with the wagons. It was too conspicuous. That night, they slept downstream on the Free State side of the border. The next morning, the English could be seen moving towards them down the river on the opposite bank and beginning to cross. So Rates and the small band rode off, warning the women on the farms as they passed that the British were coming. He knew exactly where he wanted to go. I took this route as I had decided to make for the neighbourhood of Whipstadt a village and district that I knew well, for my brothers and I camped and hunted there as boys. There was also another reason besides his knowledge of the land that Rates was heading that way. He was counting on finding the herds of semi-wild horses that used to frequent the river. For there was small chance of the horses we rode being able to last out the bitter winter that was upon us, he writes. We found the homesteads along the river intact, but... As the bulk of the male population of these parts had been captured with old General Coronier at Paardeberg more than a year ago, the farms were for the most part tenanted by women and children. You'll remember the disastrous battle of Paardeberg, where Coronier and 5,000 Boers were captured by the British as Lord Roberts pushed towards Bloemfontein. That seems so long ago in our story. So far the homesteads, though, on this bank had been left alone, but that was going to change. They told us that an occasional British column had marched through during the past six or eight months, but thus far, the policy of farm burning and the removal of the lay inhabitants had not been put into operation here. 
Yet, Rates looked back as these women spoke and saw the spirals of smoke behind them. The British were coming for these homesteads too. At night the sky was reddened by the glare of burning homesteads to tell the unfortunate inhabitants their long immunity was over. As with other instances, the women were stoic, rarely weeping as they grabbed their children to make an escape. The women took the matter bravely, writes Rates. Each family, as soon as they realized the danger, fetched the oxen, unspanned their wagon, and trekked away south across the plains, out of harm's way. They too would look back and see the smoke rising from their homes. Finally, Rates and the three Germans rode into Hoopstad town, dusty and tired after their troubles. The place was deserted. The English garrison, for some unexplained reason, having set fire to their stores and marched away two days before. Shortly after they arrived, a single German trader rode in from the southeast, where he was serving with a small Boer commander, and proved to be a godsend. He proved a useful ally, says Rates, as he showed us a quantity of maize concealed in an underground receptacle on which we fed our horses for some days, enabling the wretched animals to pick up condition a little. The man also gave them the good news that there were indeed wild horses nearby, but there was no way to catch them. The reason was that the British had been shooting them for fear that they would end up in precisely the situation that Rates preferred, roped and then broken in to be used as a Boer war horse. He suggested Rates and his gang follow him back to the small commando somewhere to the south, where they'd be able to work together in order to capture the skittish wild horses. So they agreed to go with the trader and travelled over rolling plains within a few days, reached the force to which he was attached. This consisted of 20 men under an officer of the now defunct OFS artillery. They made us welcome, but shook their heads when we mentioned horses. As Rates and his friends were to find out, capturing skittish wild horses was going to be next to impossible. For indeed, we found next day that we might as well have tried to catch antelopes. It was frustrating for these boers, because right in front of their eyes they could see dozens of beautiful strong wild horses leaping about, eating the herbs of the felt, roaming this way and that. The boers ranged themselves in an extended semicircle, and approached, but to no avail. The mustangs went racing away, manes and tails in the wind, and in spite of our endeavours we failed to capture a single one of them. There were no fences around the farms, so the wild horses had free rein of the plains and disappeared. Still, the four managed to spend the next week feeding their horses and resting with their new friends, strengthening their existing mounts and talking about the next move. We'll leave them there and head back to Pretoria, where Johanna van Warmelo was finishing off the first month working as a nurse at Irene concentration camp. She had been shocked, as were all those who ventured into these camps, by the desperate state of the families. Johanna remembers also a Boer spy, but that only emerged at the end of the war in 1902. The inmates of the camps were dying in large numbers, three a day, mostly children. Johanna had just buried 12-year-old Gert Besedner the previous week. Each day was a blur of sick babies, dying children and pernicious officials. Her spirits were raised on the 22nd of May, when, in the middle of the day, a Boer commander made its presence known. That must have been very embarrassing for the British garrison nearby, because Irene was not far from the Transvaal capital, Pretoria. The British had seized the capital in June 1900, almost a year before, and they still did not control the land around the city. Johanna had been keeping her three separate diaries, as we know, and today she entered, 
Fancy, dear diary, what those cheeky boers did in broad daylight at midday. They rode coolly up to the kopje to the right of the camp and drove off five hundred head of cattle and a great many donkeys. I suppose Kaki feels rather like a donkey this evening. Her mischievous reference to Kaki was, of course, to the British uniform colour. They had learnt their lesson in the First Boer War of 1880 when they turned out to fight on the grey, brown and green felt with their red battle tunics. Now they're dressed in Kaki. The looted livestock belonged to a certain Mr. Erasmus, who was a hands-upper and had been doing some looting himself. Erasmus was enriching himself by raiding the farms alongside the British and then driving off a few head for his own herd. Rough justice. Johanna was now known as de Medicina by the camp inmates, the medicine, but she was not always sure what illness prevailed and would then take patients to visit the two doctors this camp had. 5,000 people were incarcerated in Irene camp, mostly the elderly as well as women and children. Squeezed together in poor conditions where water was scarce and often contaminated, disease spread fast. Typhoid, in particular, was a killer of many of the children. On the 23rd of May 1901, Johanna was faced with another death, this time of a baby who she had taken leave of only the previous day. The poor little soul was just going when I left the camp, and I could not stay with her because I must be in early, she writes in her diary. Johanna, though, is also falling sick at this point, but she's not sure of the cause, although her symptoms appear flu-like. Now she rushed back to the tent and was taken aback by what she saw. The Boers are sometimes very queer with their remedies. When I went to see the dying baby first, they were just busy getting at the tablespoon of warm dog's blood, and the poor dog was sitting outside with blood dripping from the wounded ear. She urgently told the family that the traditional recipe was merely exposing the child to an unnecessary pain. I told the parents there was nothing more to be done. They were heartbroken, for this was the only little girl. The child died a short time later, and Johanna begins to break down. All she appears to be doing is treating children. And she writes, Oh, I wish no more children would be born when there is such misery. Meanwhile, General Louis Boerter, in command of the Boers in the Transvaal, was growing more concerned by the misery these people were suffering. His own private view now was that the Boers could not win, but he would carry on fighting based on his honour code. He reached out to Lord Kitchener, as we heard in podcast 86, asking for permission to send emissaries to Paul Kruger in Holland. Kitchener was also keen on ending the guerrilla war as quickly as possible. The costs continued to rise. By now, he had almost a quarter of a million men in South Africa, and the war that was supposed to last one to three months had now stretched to 19. While Free State President Steyn had sent a withering reply to Boerta and Jan Smuts' suggestion that a ceasefire be negotiated, the Transvaal leadership stubbornly persisted in their plan, and if an emissary was not permitted, they'd send messages. But for that too, they needed Kitchener's permission, and again they would use a Dutch intermediary. On the 22nd of May 1901, the Consul General of the Netherlands in South Africa, F.J. Domela Nievenhuis, was summoned to Melrose House in Pretoria. British headquarters had received a request from Boerter for permission to use the Dutch cipher code to communicate with Kruger by telegram. Kitchener had consented. If the Dutch Consul General agreed, the idea was to collect the telegram in Standerton, a town in the southeastern Transvaal between the Vaal River and the railway line to Natal. Domela Nievenhuis was nonplussed, 
and thought the procedure unnecessarily complicated. Why couldn't Buddha's representatives just come to Pretoria, he asked. That was not possible. So he consented, and on the 26th of May, he took the train to Staniton, accompanied by the vice-consul Ruzagada Bishkop. Jan Smuts was the Boer representative, and he only arrived in Staniton on the 1st of June 1901, blindfolded. Biskop received the telegram for Kruger and converted it into the cipher code. On the 3rd of June, the telegram was sent to The Hague. Waiting there was Kruger's secretary, Willem Leitz, who was shocked by the tone of the message. Only a month before, in mid-April, a message from Transvaal leadership had indicated a very different situation. It was encouraging and noted that the Boers had sufficient weapons and food, meat and maize meal. Clothing was in short supply, the April note had said. Some men were now wearing sheepskin, but they were determined to carry on. They seemed to be managing. Now Smuts and Butter's telegram changed all that. What worried Kruger and Leitz was the fact that Smuts was not pessimistic by nature, yet his latest update was concerning. Our circumstances are dire, Smuts had written. Weapons and ammunition were depleted, women and children were incarcerated, dying. Others were roaming the woods and mountains where some had been murdered by Swazi and Zulu impis. In the northern Transvaal, all tribes were in rebellion, squeezing the Boers between the English in the cities and the powerful military chiefs who held the Boers at bay for decades. Boers were defecting in large numbers, and Smuts wanted an urgent conference saying the hard line by a free state president, Stain, was going to lead to catastrophe. There is quite a bit of irony here, for almost a century later, when the National Party began negotiating with the African National Congress to formally end apartheid, a similar political split emerged in South Africa. There is a simple beauty in history sometimes, and here is an example. Smuts and Boerter had not heard a word from President Kruger for eight months. He was now writing his memoirs, and almost totally blind. They wanted to know what the elder statesman wanted them to do. It was not an easy question to answer, but we will have to end this week and await Kruger's response in our next podcast. We will also hear about the shock effect on British politics caused by Emily Hoverhouse's report into concentration camps in South Africa. It caused a sea change in the perception of what the British were up to in the far south of the continent. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and head off to our website, abwarpodcast.com, where you can send me an email. You can also direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Een zonder gedaan langs die moeier duurste wal, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O breng mij terug naar die Oud-Transval, daar waar mijn Sari woont. Daar onder een die mil is bij die groen door een boer.